Well, the book of Joshua is where we find ourselves once again this morning, so I would invite you to turn there with me if you have a copy of God's Word. If you don't, you can follow along in the insert found in your bulletin or grab a copy uh, of God's Word on the back table or maybe on the back cart. We want you to have a copy of the Scriptures. In our study and in our reflection on God's Word this summer, we have been for the past six weeks studying this historical account of the nation of Israel's occupation of the land of promise, the ancient land of Canaan. And all this happened somewhere between uh, the 15th and 13th centuries B.C., depending upon who you read, who you talk to. But at its heart, the book of Joshua is a book of conquest. It's a book of a promise fulfilled. It's a book of, well, it's a book telling a story. The grand story of Yahweh redeeming and setting apart a people for Himself. And all along that journey, as we have been in this study now for six weeks or so, we have been reminded again and again of who God is, of who we are, of what God has done and continues to do. And this, of course, is the purpose of the entirety of God's Word. I know that many of you have been here for every week of this study, but let me just review for those who are new to us this morning. Moses, who led them out of the land of Egypt, has passed away, and now Joshua has been anointed as their new leader. And under his leadership, and by the gracious, powerful hand and presence of Yahweh, they have entered the land of promise. And they've done it in miraculous fashion. The the waters of the Jordan have parted that they might walk through. The walls of Jericho have crumbled in order that they might take that city. And then last week, we looked at God's wrath. God's wrath within the house of God as Achan was judged for his disobedience to what God had commanded And we've looked at all of that in some depth, and today we're we're leaping forward. I've been promising you all along that we're going to be leaping a bit in the book of Joshua, and so today we leap from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 9, and what we skip in chapter 8 is not irrelevant, it's not unimportant, but just as we look this summer at the highlights of Joshua, I've chosen to go over. Chapter 8 is the fall of Ai. Remember, this is God's people's second attempt at taking this city. And then following that, God's people renew their relationship. They renew their covenant at Joshua's leading. It's really an amazing scene. I'd encourage you to go back and to read chapter 8, maybe this afternoon, to fill in the gap of, of what we're jumping over. But picture this, God's people divided literally on opposite mountains with a valley in between and the Ark of the Covenant in the center of the valley and God's people are shouting back and forth the promises and the obligations of the covenant, reminding each other of what God requires of them. What a scene and a sight that must have been. 
And it's interesting because here they are barely in the land, and yet we have yet another monument. Joshua sets up another monument and another reading of the law. And it's just a reminder that God's people, we included, are a forgetful people. And so it's good that you're here this morning. It's good that you're here to renew your covenant, to renew your relationship with the Lord each Lord's Day to remember what He has done. And that brings us to the passage for today, uh, Joshua chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 through, I'm going to read verses 1 through 27, the entirety of the chapter. And if you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. Listen as I read. As soon as the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was warm. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now these cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This is what we will do to them. 
Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you will never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I tell you, those of you who have been here all along this journey, this story of Joshua, just when you think the drama can't get any more intriguing, then we come to a story like this, a story that's titled in your Bibles, The Gibeonite Deception. As we walk through this passage for the next few minutes, I want us to do so centered on two primary truths, two primary truths that the Lord wants to impress, I believe, on our lives this morning. And the first one is this, you can't do life without God. You can't do life without God. We've all, of course, had to learn this in our own lives, on an earthly scale, in relationship with, with our own parents. We, we grow, we learn, we mature, then at some point we get too big for our britches, as my mom used to tell me all the time. We no longer think we need what we've clearly needed up until this point. I can, I can still hear my kids' voices in my head. I can do it. I can do it, Dad. And that becomes our declaration. And at times, we as parents, we firmly say, no, you can't do it. And at other times, as parents, we go ahead and let them see if they can do it and let them fail in doing it. Our passage this morning, as we jump back into the narrative of Joshua, begins with, with a shift going on among the inhabitants of Canaan, right? Hearts that were once melting have now turned into armies that are suddenly uniting as one. These kings that once thought that they had no chance against the nation of Israel are now uniting with one another because now maybe is th there is a chance. After all, they failed to take Ai at first. As a little side note here, the rippling effects of Achan's sin that he thought was so solitary, still affecting the life of God's people. But in this alliance, there is one city 
There's one city, the chief city of the Hivites, located less than 30 miles south of Israel's current position, and they have a better plan than the alliance. Now, what you need to remember as you put yourself into this story, as you remind yourself of what's going on, we need to remember the words of instruction that the Lord gave His people in Deuteronomy 7. Let me read it. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, He said, long before, through Moses, when He brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away the nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Now, last week we talked about how we deal with the harshness of God's command in the conquest of Canaan. So, I'm not going to open up that can of worms again. The point I wanted to make here is that there is no wiggle room or flexibility in this campaign. The Lord has instructed, He has given explicit instructions to His people as to what He wants to see happen. And as we've looked at before, this is His fight anyway. He is the commander of this army. But something we also need to see is, and remember is that there also is instruction about how God's people were to deal with the people before they got to the land of promise. So in Deuteronomy 20, we read this, when you draw near to a city, not in the promised land, offer peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens up to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So you have these two very explicit commands that God's people have received in the book of Deuteronomy through the mouth of Moses. To those cities and people in the land of promise, do not make covenants. To those people outside of the land of promise, if they will make covenant with you, make them your servants. Well, the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites had done their homework. They knew their enemy. They knew that the nation of Israel wasn't interested in taking prisoners. They were goners as residents of the promised land, but they knew that they had a chance. If they could convince Israel that they actually weren't residents of the promised land, that they lived outside of the promised land. And so a ruse was conceived. All they needed was enough circumstantial evidence and enough passionate actors to play the part until the very end and stick to the story at all costs. And so they found their cold, crusty, dried out bread. They collected their wine skins that they looked like they had been stretched after years, or excuse me, after weeks, even months of travel. They put on their worn, tattered clothes. They wore down their sandals, and they came armed with a story. A story that was careful, notice, not to mention the recent acts of Jericho and Ai, because after all, that was fresh news that they wouldn't have heard about yet because they were traveling from this distant land. 
Their scheme is, it's, it's like these, uh, these marketing ploys that you see that on TV, right? I, I see two grass-stained shirts. One's washed with Tide. One's washed with a leading detergent. And clearly, when they're washed, the one that was washed with Tide looks so much better. No matter that I didn't verify the stains and the severity of the stains, no matter that I didn't witness the washings, I'm supposed to just take their word for it. Notice the Israelites don't immediately take this story at face value. Verse 7, perhaps, perhaps you live among us, they say. You see, there's some doubt. There's some, there's some uncertainty. There is some suspicion. And rightly so, after all, why would these people from so far away need to make a treaty with Israel if they live so far away? It's not as if Israel is knocking on their door. And so why? But the Gibeonites press in. They lay it on thick. They don't want equality. They're content to be servants, be slaves. We know your God allowed for this. And then here's the key verse in this episode. The verse that gets to the heart of the matter. Verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. The Israelites, take, they take this crusty bread they take these wineskins like they are some kind of CSI unit that's going to rightfully examine things and get to the bottom of this predicament instead of simply crying out to the Lord. The Lord who has led them, who has been with them every step of the way. You see, what Joshua should have done is he should have found the instructions. He should have remembered the Lord's instructions in Numbers 27-21 when he himself was commissioned to lead in place of Moses. It says this, And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim. The Urim was some sort of sacred lot that was part of the garment of the priest. He should have gone to Eleazar. You see, while the Lord said to Joshua, I'm not going to speak to you the same way I spoke with Moses, I am giving you a pathway to interact with me, to seek counsel from me. And for whatever reason, they didn't do it. So why? Why didn't God's people ask counsel from the Lord? Well, this is where this truth, I think, hits home for us. I know for me, as I was studying it, this truth that you can't do life without God. You see, we all have times in our lives when we, we are in dire straits, desperate situations when it's absolutely clear that we don't know what to do. And in those times, we cry out, regardless of our relationship to the Lord. Our world even cries out, and they, says, they say, help me, God. I need some help from above. But this isn't one of those times. 
right? This is a time when Israel thought that they knew what they were doing. It seemed clear. Or at least it seemed relatively clear. So much so that they didn't even think about consulting God. And instead, they pressed on in prideful independence rather than slowing down in humble dependence. They lived as if they were alone in this world rather than recognizing that they are in covenant relationship. They assumed that they had it under control, and yet they are in enemy territory. They ought to be on guard against this kind of stuff. Wisdom of the Scriptures proclaims Proverbs 3.5, a familiar verse to many of us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And then Ephesians 6.11 admonishes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's true, people of God. We don't live in the same situation as Israel does here, but our hearts are the same. We are naturally forgetful of God. We are foolishly independent at times, and we too have an enemy that is full of lies and full of cunning. And as I thought about this this week, and as I meditated upon this and studied this passage, it seems to me that this all comes down to relationship. To relationship. It involves relating to God as a person. Not Not as a human person, but as a being. A being who wants to be in relationship with you. A being who out of the overflow and and love and fellowship within the Godhead, within the Trinity, created a people specifically to be a part of that love, to be a part of that fellowship. And when we rebelled as a people, He sent His Son to rescue us, to pursue us. Therefore, God is not some at-the-ready answer generator for us. As we go about living our lives, whenever we need a helping hand, we pull up the answer generator. He is a father. He is a friend. He is a brother. He is a lover. And he is one who is glorified when you enjoy him. Of course, He wants you to cry out to Him in trouble. Absolutely, He is a present help in times of trouble. But in those times of plenty, in those times when you feel like you've got it under control, He wants relationship. Paul Miller, in his excellent book on prayer, says this, prayer isn't meant to be a production, but the conversation where your life and your God meet. Now, does this mean we should ask, you should ask him in prayer what you should order for dinner tonight when you go out with your family? 
Well, not necessarily, but it might. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know the answer to what specific questions call you to move forward in confidence and what situations demand that you slow down and ask of the Lord and consult the Lord. But I suspect that in most of our lives, I I know in my life, I need to err on the ladder on asking my God more on seeking my God more as to what I ought to do. And I don't even know how that specific counsel will come to you through the words of another, through this, your own spirit and your inner being. But what I do know is that we have His Word. We have each other. His Spirit is with you always. I do know that you don't need a priest. I do know that you have an enemy that is scheming and that is smart. That you have a heart that you ought to distrust at times. And I do know that you can't do life on your own, even when you think you can. And so live not only before Him, before the face of God, Not only live for Him as His child, as His servant, but live with Him. Live with Him. That's the first truth that I want us to see this morning. But we also need to see that while we can't do our lives on our own, that God orders your lives despite you. That's the second truth that I think we see from this passage, that God orders your lives despite you. And brothers and sisters, this is about the best news ever. That you can't screw it up. What I don't want us to miss this morning is that while there's certainly failure on Israel's part, there's certainly deceit on the part of the Gibeonites. This is ultimately a story of grace. God's overwhelming grace. First, in regards to His people, in regards to the nation of Israel, there's no doubt that they made a mistake. They didn't consult God and they entered into agreement that they couldn't back out of. And yet through this neglect, through this mistake, we we learn in the very next chapter, in chapter 10, verse 2, that this gives them a unique alliance against the coalition that is formed around them. Suddenly, God has turned this into a, a good thing. In other words, they were strategically better off now than they were before. Could God have done it another way? Of course He could. But God orders your lives despite you. Now the oath is kind of an issue in this passage. You should know that the fact that Israel can't back out of this oath, much to the frustration of the fighting men who are ready to go take care of Gibeon and their deception, this is actually an honorable thing. 
In that culture in particular, words mattered. Your word mattered. And taking an oath was a serious thing. Not only that, but when you swore in Yahweh's name, it was his honor that was at stake. And so the leaders stop the people and they say, no, we must keep our oath. As Psalm 15.4 commends the one who swears to his own hurt, so the Lord honors the decision of these leaders to swear to their own hurt. Now, it doesn't cripple them in regards to their future obedience. Quite to the contrary, they move forward in faith. But there's also grace here to the Gibeonites. Here was a people whose deceitful plan worked. I mean, I find verse 22 a little bit puzzling. Joshua questions them about why they deceive them. But the answer is clear. It's, it's better to be alive servants than dead freemen. Of course, we would try to do whatever we could do to stay alive. Now, just because it worked doesn't mean that they ought to be honored. And yet, what was behind their deceit? Well, ultimately, faith. Weak faith, but faith that Yahweh was to be trusted. Verse 9, they explained to Israel, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. See, they essentially tell Joshua that at the end of the day, we came to you. We broke our alliance with the rest of the people and the surrounding nations. We deceived you because of who your God is, because of what we've heard he's done, and because of what we believe he can do in the future. And as we've been studying the book of Joshua, that sounds familiar It sounds like a prostitute. It sounds like a harlot. It sounds like Rahab. You see, we're reminded here that Yahweh's grace is for prostitutes and for liars. And here's the even more amazing thing. These lying Gibeonites will not only be spared But their curse will involve serving in the house of God in conditions that are favorable for them to see day in and day out Yahweh and His dealings with His people. And history tells us that this place of the Gibeonites It has its effect. 400 years after this story, David will put the tabernacle in the city of Gibeon. On the day that his son Solomon becomes king, burnt offerings will be offered in the city of Gibeon. One of David's mighty men in 1 Chronicles 12.4 will be a Gibeonite. And when the people return from exile to rebuild the walls, We read in Nehemiah, they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolt and its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah. 
95 men of Gibeon in all returned to help rebuild the wall. You see, God's grace through their own deception, through his own people's laxity, came to a people undeserving, outside of the covenant, with no hope. Now, I don't know, we don't know how many individual Gibeonites truly believed and grabbed a hold of Yahweh and the covenant and all that it had to offer, but praise God that God orders your lives despite you. You see, as this promise comes to us today, it's, it shouts loud the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the greatest imaginable evil perpetrated by men, innocent and perfect Jesus hanging on the cross was accomplishing the greatest salvation that the world would ever see. And now me and you all of us messes ourselves through faith in his name are heirs of that promise. Not only that, but we can have confidence to live in obedience despite our past, despite our screw-ups, despite our sin, even when the consequences of our sin are daily before us. God gives grace to the humble and forgiveness to those who look to Him in faith. So this this passage and this truth, it leads us to gospel living. To sweet gospel living. Forgiven and free. And so Paul can write to the church at Colossae in chapter 2 of verse 6 of Colossians, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. By grace, independence, in gratitude for His care. Now these are such good truths for our hearts. As I was thinking about them, I I thought about the Heidelberg Catechism, one of these ancient documents from our tradition, from the Reformed tradition. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answers 26 through 28, it begins expositing, it begins explaining the Apostles' Creed, this creed that we are about to confess together in just a few minutes. And it says, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. And the answer is this, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by His eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ His Son. I trust Him so much that I do not doubt that He will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and He will turn to my good whatever adversity He sends me in this sad world. And I want to put in parentheses, even adversity of my own making. He is able to do this because He is Almighty God. He desires to do this because He is a faithful Father. And so then, question and answer 28, how does this knowledge of providence help us? 
We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God that nothing will separate us from His love. All creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. Father, we thank You for the reminders here that You are a God of grace and that You are writing that story of grace amidst the messes of our lives, no matter how those messes come about. Oh, Father, continue to untangle the knots that we all experience as broken people in a broken world. Straighten those knots out and fill them with the gospel and with your Son and with the leading of your Spirit. And Father, may we live in such a way where we, by your Spirit, would be able to discern when it is we need to step in faith and in confidence and when it is we need to humble ourselves before you. Father, may we live our lives in such a way where we don't just live under your care, but we live with your care, alongside your care. Oh, Holy Spirit, take my weak words. Strike from your people's memory that which is not pleasing to you and impress deeply on their hearts and minds and eventually their lives that which you desire. Oh, Father, this I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.